All right, so I'm back. Did you miss me? Um, yeah, it was good to have a couple weeks off to listen to uh, Dr. Dave Thompson and Becky. Oh my gosh, uh, just awesome stuff the last couple weeks. Uh, so uh, excited, uh, also the fact that they live in Reading, and so we can probably have them back in the future again and uh, get to hear more of their stories and what God's been doing and uh, just sweethearts. Uh, but this uh, week, uh, I'm back, so now you get uh, to listen to me again, so lucky you. Uh, but uh, we're starting this week a new series that will take us through uh, at least this year, and uh, we're going to go through the book of Genesis. And so uh, the title of this series is Roots, and that's, uh, you know, Sean Brackett and I, we sat down and brainstormed for a while and finally came up with Roots, and then we came up with this imagery, which is amazing, so good job, Sean. But um, anyway, uh, so the reason that I'm, def- uh, I'm calling this series Roots is because, and I'm not alone in this, uh, the book of Genesis, in my perspective, is a book that roots us in the foundations of who God is, who he created us to be, and what this life is all about. And so we will, as we walk through this book of Genesis, spend a lot of time talking about who God is. Matter of fact, we'll spend uh, at least 10 weeks on the first three chapters alone, exploring and expanding and understanding the first three chapters and how they are defining for us, telling us who God is. And talking about who we are and how we were created and why we were created. And then from there, you know, what is the problem? This problem of sin. And then how are we, how are we dealing with that? How are we coping with that? What is God's plan? And so uh, I'm looking forward to this year, but I'm also uh, a little bit, uh, you know, just it's going to be a stretch for me, uh, which, uh, you know, God loves to stretch me, and especially in the area of preaching and and you know, diving into books like this and then sharing it with you guys. There's a lot of different perspectives on the book of Genesis, and so I, I know I'm battling some of that, and, and so we're probably going to disagree, and that's okay at times. And, uh, but uh, hopefully we can still be united together in that as we go through, but I'm, I am looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun to, to walk through this and just be reminded this year of who God is, right? I mean, and who we are, and, and those foundationals, those root uh, perspectives that we need to cling to and hang on to when the world is in chaos and when the world is just going crazy. Uh, so I think it's going to be a fun year. The, uh, the start of this series, though, I felt like God kind of just led me to say, you know, we need to maybe take a moment to spend one message, if you can, Pastor Sean, if you can, in one message, somehow do a just a, a, a summary perspective of telling the story of the entire Bible. So this service, uh, this this series, this message is on the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. So sit back and relax. <laughs> it's gonna be great. 
Uh, no, the, uh, this has been done by many people, but uh, you know, understanding they call it the meta-narrative, right? The big picture. What is kind of the big picture themes that we see throughout Scripture? And, and, and a lot of different people will take lit, different focuses on those big picture themes. And so I've got a particular perspective I'm going to give you today, and so I hope it's an encouragement to you. I hope that it makes sense to you in some sense, uh, but I also hope that it's you know, founded in Scripture. I think it is, but uh, tons of Scripture that are in the outline that you'll notice uh, because there's just so much of it there. Uh, anyway, so uh, I'm hoping that this will be that will help us as we begin this journey to recognize that this book, Genesis, is that foundational book where we can place our roots in understanding of who God is, who we are, and why we're in this world, what's going on, but that that's the beginning book of this big story that God is telling. And we are in that story. Right? I mean, Scripture is closed, right? The canon's closed. We're not adding more Scripture, but God is continuing to work in the individual lives of his, of his believers. He is still active in our world. And so, in essence, the story is still continuing in this moment, in this time, as we each learn and discover who God is on our own, in our own personal experiences with Him, as we learn and discover who we are, and as we learn and discover the sin struggle that we're in, and how do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? What has God done for us in that? So, with all of that introduction, which I hope wasn't too long, because I'm never going to get through this otherwise, uh, we, we jump into the story. His story, if you will. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Such a fitting start in the beginning, God, that, that, that at the beginning of all things, the first thing that we need to understand is that God exists. That he is here, that he is there, he has always been there. He's self-existent, he's holy, he's eternal, he's trinitarian, he's, you know, he's, he's multi-personality, right? In this essence of this God who's one, but also three, he's good, he's just. He's loving. But more than that, God created. He created all that is. Everything that we see, all that is seen, all that is unseen, God has created. He's created the sun and the moon and stars and planets, air and water, land, plants, trees, fish, birds, animals, and humans. Humans, though, he made special extra special, if you will. All of creation was good, but humans were very good. Humans were made, you see, in the image of God. Self-aware, having free will, made for eternity as well, and made responsible for its actions. Loving, he made us male and female, and he made us to enjoy loving relationship with each other, with creation, and with himself. And after he made man, he said, man needs coffee, <laughs> because it's not good for man to be without coffee. I know it. Just leave me alone. 
And you people blowing your coffee aroma in my face this morning, not cool. Just saying. Uh, all right. So Adam, the creation of Adam initiates the first, if you will, era of humanity. It's an era of individual free will. Will we choose God with our own self-will? Will we choose God with our own strength? Can we do it? In this first era of Adam, God reveals, most importantly, his purpose for his creation. He wants us to understand. You know, he's given us this free will so that we would understand that he longs above all else to be in relationship with us. And that relationship is meant to be of love. In this initial area, God also reveals the consequences for our rejection of that loving relationship. The eternal brokenness that comes from our rejection of Him. The suffering and the toil that comes from rejecting that relationship with Him. The death that comes. We learn that all evil must be punished and that God's wrath is poured out on sin. So in this first era, Adam, who initiates this era of free will, if you will, fun to say will, isn't it? I will. In this era, we see the first person that starts this era fails. Adam and Eve, they, they fail. They don't choose God. Their self-will fails them. And they're doomed by their own sin and their own rebellion. But it's not just with Adam. It's interesting because it's almost like God starts over a couple of times here in Genesis because we then see Noah who shows up. And God wipes out all of creation because it's so evil. Its self-will is not be choosing God. And so there's just evil everywhere. And so God finds Noah. And he says, okay, Noah, I'm gonna, you, you're a pretty good guy, so I'm going to save you, but I'm wiping everybody else. We're going to start over with you. And what's the first thing that Noah does coming off of the ark? All right, gets drunk, sins, who knows what's going on there. We'll talk about that later maybe. I don't know how that's going to go. We'll see. It's kind of a crazy story. But Noah blows it, right? And then, right, what we have next is then we have chapter 11 of Genesis. All of a sudden, we have this, again, this, this, this disaster that's going on with the Tower of Babel. And again, this evilness. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Oh, we're so great. Oh, look at us. And then God says, ah, we've got to start over again in a sense. Now, he doesn't wipe everybody out. He confuses languages, spreads everyone out, and then he starts again with Abram. He calls Abram out. Just follow me. And I'll, I'll make you a great nation, a great name, and you'll, I'll bless the world through you. Just follow me. And so Abram does follow him. But again, right away, he starts lying like he goes, you know, I, no, she's not my wife. She's just my sister. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Right? Again, so over and over again, we see in this era, failure after failure after failure, utter failure and self-will. 
And then there's 400 years of despair in the midst of slavery in Egypt. Moses initiates the new era, the next era, if you will. And this is an era of the priests and the judges. In this era, the question is, will we choose God through the priests? Can we do it with religious practices? Can we do it where the religious system is in place? Can we then choose God? In this section, God reveals, in this era, God reveals his will to us through the law. He gives us the law and says, this is my will. This is right and wrong. You need to know this. This is how you worship me. This is the way, you know, love God and love others. This is what we need to do. Convic it also, the law convicted each of us of the rebellion that we had against God, revealing to us the fact that we were sinners, that we couldn't do it on our own, that our self-will had failed, and so we needed something else. We needed to focus somewhere else and try something different. And also in this section, the law reveals the economy of redemption. God's economy of redemption. Key perspectives that we find out in the sacrificial law is that substitution that someone else can pay for your sins. We see confession is revealed as well, that we need to confess for our sins. The fact of bringing a sacrifice is that admission, saying, yeah, I've sinned. You know, you wouldn't bring a sacrifice unless you recognized that you had sinned. So the idea that we bring a sacrifice is that confession of sin. Atonement is revealed as well, for that there needs to be atonement for every sin. That every sin, the price of every sin is death. And death of a perfect sacrifice. That the sacrifice we bring cannot just be any old lamb. It has to be a perfect lamb. We also see the, the perspective of imputation. The fact that when you would bring a sacrifice for sin, that you would place your hand on the lamb, on the head of the lamb, and slit the lamb's throat. That this lamb was taking your sin and was atoning for it, paying the price, and that as a result, I was able to receive the perfection of the lamb. I was considered just again. I was justified. So in this era, we see, again, the first one who initiates this era of the priests and the judges, Moses, fails. The first one. I mean, we're, we're just starting this new era, and Moses, you know, not even 40 years after this has begun, makes the big mistake in Numbers 12, 20, right? God says, hey, go speak to the rock, and I'll bring water. And what does Moses do? I mean, read the passage. He's all fired up. He's like mad at the Israelites. You guys are just stiff-necked people. I just don't like you. You're really bad. You're always complaining about everything. Here, here's your water kind of thing, right? And God's like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? I said, speak to the rock. You stole my glory. You didn't give me the glory. You took the credit yourself. So Moses fails, but of course Moses isn't the only one that fails. We see over and over again failed judges who rise up. I mean, th these guys are not, I mean, Samson is not a good guy, okay? 
He's not a good guy, but God still uses him, right? But, so we have failure after failure after failure, utter failure again of religion. That we could somehow use religion in order to enjoy this relationship with God. In Judges 21, 25, it talks about how everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And then there's 400 years we see here of despair in the judges. Notice, it's a 400-year period again. 400 years of slavery, 400 years of the judges and the failure of religion. And then the next era begins with a guy named Saul. Saul initiates the new era of the kings and prophets. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, he is anointed to become the first king of Israel. The question is, will we choose God through the kings? If, if, if we just have some good leadership, if we have some good governance, a good government structure, will we then now worship God? Will we choose God and be in good relationship with God then? In this era, God reveals to us the coming kingdom of God. Talks about how God is going to establish his kingdom on earth, and that it's going to be a place of peace and of love and of justice. He ignites our hearts, in a, in a sense, in this section with prophet after prophet talking about and prophesying about the next kingdom that's to come and how it's going to be a beautiful and wonderful and powerful and great and loving place. But again, in this era, we see that even the first one, the first king, fails. Saul, towards the end of his life, at battle, can't wait for Samuel to get there to offer the sacrifice, so he does it himself. And so Samuel comes in in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, verse 13, and says, Saul, what are you doing, man? <laughs> the kingdom has now been stripped from you. And we see king after king after king fails, even the great king David of course, in some sense, may have failed the greatest with adultery and murder. Utter failure of the government. Jeremiah 2, 4-9 talks about how this government, this, this kingdom has totally failed and it's going to be judged because it's turned its back on God completely. And then even moving into the New Testament, we see, because it kind of carries over into the New Testament, we see Jesus going after the Pharisees, saying, what are you guys doing? You know, again, this continuation of the kingdom and the, pre and the prophets, and he's saying, you guys are you're evil people, you're hypocrites, you're trying to do things that is just disgusting, right? And Jesus goes after them. So there's utter failure of the government structure of trying to get us in right relationship with God. And then there's another 400 years of tyranny. It's that intertestamental period from Malachi to Matthew, 400 years. Interesting, isn't it? 400 years of slavery, 400 years of judges, 400 years of intertestament period here before we get to the next era. And Jesus, the Son of God, initiates the next era, the era of grace. The question again, will we choose God by grace through faith? Can we accept that Jesus did it all? 
See, in this era, Jesus, or God reveals to us his amazing love for humanity, that he has never given up. Even in the garden, he gave hints of it with the judgment against the serpent, where he says that you are going to stomp on his head, he will certainly bite your heel, but you're going to destroy the serpent, you're going to destroy evil, it's coming. And so now we begin to see that God has totally been pursuing his creation from day one, continuing to long for that relationship, but also recognizing that we need to walk this journey a bit to recognize that we can't do it on our own that we need jesus to do it for us and in this he also reveals that he takes care of our sin and our separation that he has made way for it he has provided for us he has pursued he's sacrificed he's provided all that we need in order to engage in this relationship with our father with our creator Jesus in this era is the willing sacrifice. He receives punishment for our sins. He substitutes himself to take the punishment that we deserve. 1 John 4:10. He's also the perfect sacrifice. He never sinned. The whole time he lived on this earth, he continued to choose God, to be obedient, to choose him, to use his own self-will to make that choice. And he takes the blame completely for our sin, but also gives to those who choose him perfection. Romans 5, 19. Through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. After 33 years of living on this earth in this new era, doing it right, doing it perfectly, the first one to, you know, the first initial new era person, you know, to finally seem like maybe this is it, maybe we've got it right. Maybe we finally got a, a system that works. And then Jesus is crucified. Even the disciples were stunned by this. They didn't know what to do with this. They thought, this is the guy, this is the one that's going to make everything right, and then he's dead. And for three days, there was this tension. Did he fail? Didn't he, do the, didn't he make this better? Didn't he make it happen? Wasn't he successful in some way? And then, of course, on that third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The most powerful, the most profound moment of all of history. Never before had someone risen from the dead. Certainly, we'd had people that had come back from the dead, but then they died again. This is the first one, the first time someone who had died and then rose again, came back, defeated death for all time, eternity, never dying again. First time it ever happened. He's the first one to escape the, the clutches of death, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. And in that, he proved who he was. 
He proved that he was the one. He was the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the one to initiate a new era, an era of grace that people could enjoy this amazing relationship with God, a restored relationship, an eternal uh, future with him because of Jesus, only in and through Jesus. Opening the way for all of us to enjoy this amazing restoration. In Jesus, we see the way of grace revealed. The relationship that each of us can have with grace, by grace, with our Father in heaven. Jesus is the way, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus, through him. He is the only way. And it is through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us. And faith is belief, repentance, and trust in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We repent of our rebellion against God. And we trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is enough for us. We don't have to do it. We don't have to make it happen. Jesus did it. We just have to trust. In this way of grace, we find a renewed hope. It doesn't end this era in despair. We find ourselves in the midst of this era now, not in despair, not going there's no hope, not thinking that we're just finished, this is not going to work, this grace thing has failed, it's never going to work for us, we still don't have hope, we still can't restore our relationship. No, we don't, we ha- it has been restored, we're enjoying it now, we're not in despair, we have great hope. Hope because it's not dependent on our strength. It's not dependent on some kind of religious order. It's not dependent on a government authority. It's not dependent on our obedience. It's dependent only on the finished work of Jesus. Death no longer is to be feared because resurrection is ours. Now, there is one more era to come. It's the restoration era. This final era will come at the return of Jesus. John 14, 1 to 3. He left. He prepared a place. If he's gone and he's preparing a place for us, he's going to come back and he's going to bring us to be with him where he is at. And in this restoration to come, all evil will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, Revelations 20, verse 10. And then all of creation will be renewed. A new creation doesn't mean it's brand new like never existed before. A new creation means a redeemed creation. It's been refreshed and renewed and made like new again. and an external existence with God and his whole family. Revelations 21, 1-4. This is that final era, the restoration era, the, te- the era to come when Jesus returns. Now the previous three eras, we saw that they failed. They did not work. From the very beginning, they were destined for failure. The first individual stepping into that era, each one of them failed, and then all of them after them failed as well. But with Jesus, 
we see that he succeeds. He is the one who surrendered his life so that all humanity can be saved by grace rather than by works. But more than that, amazingly, shockingly maybe in some perspective, Jesus also is successful in all the ways previous where men failed. He's the one who uses his free will to choose the Father so that in him all can be in relationship with God. He is also the one who is the high priest who gave the perfect sacrifice, one sacrifice for all time to make all who come to him holy. And he is the one is the, who is the king of kings who has established the eternal kingdom and where all his people can flourish. In Jesus, all of these previous eras, including the era that he ushered in of grace, are all successful. We can enjoy the success of all of those eras and all of those ways of coming to God only through Jesus not through a good government structure that forces us or makes us or gives us laws that force or encourage us to follow Jesus. Not from a religious structure where we just follow and worship the pastors and the preachers and all that kind of stuff enough so that we can look like we're doing something good and not through our own self-will and making that choice, but only through Jesus. And in Jesus, we are successful in all ways. The end. <laughs> I did it. Nice. Worship team, why don't you come up? We're going to move into communion now. And as we do so, I, I want to um, let you know that we're going to be doing communion each week of Lent. Uh, so this week and the next five weeks, um, we're going to do Lent each Sunday. And we're going to do communion each Sunday. And uh, so just letting you know, and as we do that, I'm going to try to focus maybe a little bit different spots on communion as we do that. And, um, and so an understanding, again, that, that communion for us is this reminder, right? To do this in remembrance of Jesus. And the reason that we do it in remembrance of Jesus is because of what we just sh what I was just sharing, right? That, that he is what it's all about, right? I mean, it's in him that we find success. In him, we find salvation. In him, it's, it's, everything's there. And so we have to understand and recognize this reality. And so communion is a way for us to be reminded of that. That when we show up, right, to worship, it's not, you know, we're not able to worship because we're so great. You know, we're not able to worship because it's our amazing religious, you know, and our amazing choices. Oh, man, look what I did. I chose. No, it, it is all about Jesus. And so we need to be constantly reminded of this reality. And so every time we come to, mun to communion, it's an opportunity to remember what he has done for us, that it's all about him, but it's also an opportunity for us to once again make that commitment to trust him. So this week, as we observe communion, I feel like, you know, there's a need for us to once again remind ourselves of our sin. 
in American Christianity, I think especially these days, sin seems to be diminished quite drastically. And we just don't want to look at our sin. And maybe that's because for many years, many of us are too focused on our sin, because that's, that's not good either. But we need to be reminded that we can't do it. It is such a slippery slope for us to take the credit or take the criticism. Such a slippery slope for us to think that, you know, oh, I failed, so it's all about me, and so I can't do anything. Ignoring the fact that, no, wait a second, this is all about Jesus, and he can redeem, and he can use even your sin to bring glory to his name. On the other side, we can get really excited about the credit. Look what I did for Jesus. Look at all the amazing things. Wow, I'm just so good. I, man, I went to church this, this morning. <laughs> Boy, I'm really a good person, right? You know, and, and we take the credit, not realizing that the fact that we even have free will and the free choice is a gift from God. And so for us to recognize that in our sin, that we need, we need to remember that we are sinful indeed, but it doesn't separate us because Jesus paid the price. The passage just I want to read to you to start uh, this out with is just 1 John 1.9, familiar passage to many of you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, going on in verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we need to admit our sin. We need to be honest about that. And take it before the Lord. We need to offer the sacrifice. Say, yeah, you know what? I have sinned. I need to be forgiven. And when we do that, Jesus offers up his broken body and his poured out blood to forgive that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you take out the uh, wafer... Let me pray for that, and then we'll partake together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your story. This, this history of over and over again failing, <laughs> trying to do it on our own in different ways, and not being able to be successful. And then finally, the Son of God shows up on the scene. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming and so willingly giving your life. And thank you for sending the Spirit. And Spirit, thank you for coming and indwelling us, empowering us, convicting us of sin, bringing us to repentance. And Lord, we do. We confess our sin to you right now confess to you that we are sinners and, and, and specifically we have specific sins, not just in general, but specifically we have rebelled against you. We've not loved you and we've not loved others. So Lord, we confess that sin to you with a recognition that we have no hope other than for you to receive us. And thank you that your word clearly tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and you will forgive. So Lord, as we partake of this wafer that symbolizes the broken body of Jesus, may you once again 
reveal your amazing forgiveness to us. By speaking those words, you are forgiven to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Let's take together. Heavenly Father, we thank you as well for this cup. I'm so often struck, especially in times of worship, songs that bring me to the reminder of this or when I'm reading scripture and reading these stories again, especially around Easter and Good Friday. I'm struck how your perfect son suffered and died for me. so undeserved I am. But yet, I have to confess, so loved am I as well. Lord, thank you for offering your son. And Jesus, again, thank you for willingly surrendering and pouring out your blood for me, substituting your life for mine. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, I once again, Lord, and each and every one of us here, once again make this commitment that we would be living sacrifices for you. The Lord, we want to repay the amazing love, not that we could ever do repay that, but we want to respond to that amazing love that you've shown us with love from us as well. Lord, empower us to do that. Empower us to love you and love you well and love your people that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, we'll take it together. Church, we've got one more song. Let's go ahead and stand, and then I'll come up with a closing passage. Yes, Lord, that's all we can do is praise you constantly giving glory to you, thanking you for all that you have done. Lord, thank you that you continue to pursue us all of our days. You never give up. Thank you that our hope is not in our own efforts. Our hope is not in being a part of the right church. Our hope's not in having the right government structure or king. Our hope is only in Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this 
you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless. Have a great day, church.